Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Jesus as a door, or Jesus as a gate. This is the image that we get from the passage that Elizabeth just read. Jesus as a door, Jesus as a gate. You can throw that picture up. Uh, this is a, is a little glimpse um, of what these pens that's described there in John 10 look like. I think so often we can think of pastures and the wilderness sometimes in this really pleasant way. Or every time we come across like a shepherding passage, I think the impulse move is to go full Psalm 23, which is not a bad move, but it's just like, oh, like God just shepherds us and cares for us and we're sheep. And anybody who's in the need of a little bit of, you know, holy cuddling, it's like, that's the move. That's like where we go in our mind. This passage, as we talked about last week with um, I am the shepherd, uh, is a pretty brutal passage. Jesus uh, is calling out the Pharisees. How many of you have heard the, the, the term Pharisees before? Yeah, they come up often. They're the foil to most of Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teachings are often in regards to these great rabbinical debates that the Pharisees were a part of. They're this particular group. Honestly, you could probably closely relate them to modern evangelicals in some sense. They deeply cared about the Bible and the scriptures. And what the Pharisees did is they were asking the question, why do we, Israel, keep getting um, taken captive? Why do we continue to be occupied? And so they would go back to Deuteronomy, which is their sort of ancient text, and they would go, why is it? And they would look and see that, uh, God promised them, the covenant promise that they'd bring them into uh, a land flowing with milk and honey, that they would be led by God alone, that they would flourish and build homes. And here they are finding themselves after a 400-year time, again overtaken and held captive by the, Rome, by, by the Romans. They find themselves occupied again and again. And so the question became, how do we get God to not have us be in captivity. And so the questions that would come up was, how, again, how do we do this? And the answer was always, well, we're supposed to be holy. And there's a way we're supposed to live in the world if you follow these commands. But what the Pharisees did was take the, the formal commands that were given to the priests who had their own separate things that they had to do and try to put it on everybody else to put it on the layperson. And long story short, what this would do, what this would cause would be a serious gap between the wealth and the poor because to be able to follow all of the dietary, all of the holiness laws for the priests, the common person like didn't have the time and didn't have the money to be able to do this. And they began to heap more and more laws and rules in, the, in the, the, the good intentions of getting the Hebrew people, the Israelites, to be as holy and blameless as possible so God would remove the Romans. Jesus 
gets ticked about this. Like incredibly angry. He calls them sons of hell. In fact, the Pharisees were so passionate about evangelism, going out and helping winning other converts. He says in one place that you go out and you will do whatever it takes to evangelize and bring somebody in. And when you convert someone, you make them twice the son of hell that you are. Jesus does not hold back in his absolutely brutal critique of this group. Their intentions are maybe wonderful. But what they have done is heaped laws that God never meant to put on the people. And what they did was miss the point again and again of the law in the first place. And Jesus has some strong words. Now, we talked a good amount about this last week. We're actually going in reverse order, if you remember, kind of going backwards in John 10. Because I wanted to talk about I am the good shepherd first, because this passage, being a good shepherd, is about leadership. You will be led by someone we talked about last week. Who will lead you? You will be led by cultural forces. You will be led by a particular vision of religion, politics. You will be led. This idea that you lead yourself, that idea is such a misnomer. We got into that a bit last week. Jesus is critiquing the leadership of the Pharisees. And we roll it back to the beginning of John 10 and what Elizabeth just read for us. And we see Jesus is saying, um, calling the Pharisees thieves. He's calling them thieves and robbers. Here again in John 10. Truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Going back to this image again. Shepherds would lay down and keep watch and stand guard in that gap. That was the gate. That was the door. So he's using this picture, this analogy of the sheep pen, of like saying, um, you, um, you Pharisees are supposed to be the shepherds. You guys are supposed to be the gate. But what you actually are, because everybody hearing this from the elite to the commoner would have understood this metaphor would have understood this picture. You guys actually aren't the gate. You aren't the shepherds. You aren't leading well. You're heaping all these rules onto these people. And actually, there's a reason why people are turning away from you. And so you keep coming after me. The Pharisees keep challenging him. Why? Because more and more people, the people who were not in the in crowd, the people who were on the outside, the people who were marginalized, the people who were sinners, the people who were hurting, the people who were broken, were all flocking to Jesus. And they were looking for every opportunity to take Jesus down. And Jesus just comes to a head here and goes, you're supposed to be the gate and supposed to be the shepherds, but you're not. You're the thief. You're the robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him. There's something about the way Jesus leads. We talked about this last week. Shepherds could drive from behind, which would scatter the sheep. This is what the Pharisees were doing. He's literally calling this out. You're pushing people, forcing them into laws, trying to drive them with the whip. It's not working. It's not good. He's referencing back to Ezekiel 34. And Jesus is very clearly saying, I hate it. 
I hate it. Jesus comes out in front, woos them. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Refused to see it. I am the door. I am the gate. I think it's worth drawing attention quickly to the method of the thief. You've got these legitimate boundaries of protection. And the thief is jumping over these legitimate established boundaries to sabotage and to steal. There are all these forces trying to rob us of life. And we put these boundaries up and then the thief comes in through this illegitimate access point to steal and kill and destroy. This is always the goal of the enemy, of bad leadership, of the forces around us, of evil himself, to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we could spend a whole teaching there just on the thieves. How are they doing this? There are two definitely like dominant things it's worth pointing out quickly. This is through religion, like we mentioned, heaping these laws upon the people. The Pharisee would sneak over the boundary, you could say, of God's word and says, you've got to do more. You've got to perform or God won't accept you. If you buy into that, you'll be robbed. You're moving to the danger of legalism. They they don't live up even to their own standards. And Jesus says, beware the thief of religion. And Jesus also alludes when he talks about the thief and the robber, he talks about the thief of rebellion. This is the opposite spirit. One group, the Pharisees and the religious group are obsessed with keeping laws and the other one says laws are oppressive and I want nothing to do with it. Felt appropriate today with Tim Keller's passing to quote Keller. It says, sin always begins with a character assassination of God. This is what the enemy does. The number one issue in your heart that you have to contend with and settle is what God is like. What is he like? This is the fundamental issue of our faith. Do you believe that God's boundaries restrict you? Do you believe the voice of the enemy, like live however you want? Did God really say this is the core sin, the core in, like question of the enemy before any other question? I mean, what kind of church honestly believes that? We live in a culture, right, that reframes everything around justice. And as a result, like so much godly morality and thousands of years of respected doctrine, theology, and ethics is being challenged, being challenged. Questions like, is this really, is this really? what God said. James 1 puts it this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So it just starts with a sort of doubt starts with a little bit of doubt and then it gives birth to desire and then disobedience and then ultimately spiritual death. Religion tries to leap over the boundaries and over the sheep pen 
to rob us of the life that's ours. And Jesus speaks of the thief often as the rebellion that comes into our life. And so we're told then in this passage a couple things, a couple promises then about the sheep who enter through and enter through the gate that is Jesus. By the way, the sheep pen, if this wasn't clear before, the sheep pen like is life, is protection, is heaven, is joy, is where things are right. It's a picture of the kingdom in so many ways. And so Jesus, we're told, in the sheep pen, the ones who enter through that gate and the ones that are, 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 are led by Jesus will speak to you, he will lead you, and it says in John 10, he will bring you life. Into this claim of I am the door, I am the gate. If you come through me, you will find life. And so Jesus in his claim and his critique against both religion and rebellion, he makes this claim, if you entrust yourself to me, if you go through the appointed access points, if you do this, three things will happen in your life under the care of Jesus. Jesus will speak to you, lead you, and bring you life. And so this hearing of the shepherd's voice is something that comes up again and again. As we wrap up um, the Jesus part of this, the one we long for series, as we like close uh, this chapter in these I am statements, it is so very critical that we understand that to, 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 know the, to know the shepherd, to know God, say in a clear way, like to know truth according to the scriptures is to know the shepherd's voice, which is to trust his boundaries, which is to trust, trust his access points and is to hear his voice. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There's this incredible relationship that would develop between a shepherd and a sheep. During, I found, dug up this incredible story. During the Palestinian uprising, uh, the Antifada, uh, in the 1980s, the, Israel, the Israelis decided as a form of punishment for some of the Palestinian villages um, that were causing them all sorts of trouble, uh, they, uh, this one particular place near Bethlehem refused to pay taxes. And so the officers in charge of the village, they went and confiscated all of the sheep from the shepherds, and they put all the sheep... Uh, in this very large, enlarged pen. So this was them kind of coming at these Palestinian shepherds that were creating all of this havoc. And as an incentive to pay the taxes, he said, until you pay your taxes and stop rebelling against us, we're going to withhold your livelihood from you. But towards the end of the week, this one woman comes up and begs to have her sheep back. She's a widow. Uh, she says it's her only source of provision. Quote, I will literally die without these sheep. So the soldier who's in charge of the confiscation says, sister, I, 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 what do you want me to do? Like everybody's sheep, all these different shepherd sheep are in this massive pen. And she says, well, I think my sheep know me. And he goes, I truly doubt that. If there's, no, there's no visible markings. I don't have anything like to identify them at all. Um, and how do I know you're not just going to, you know, steal a bunch of other people's sheep? Um, 
And so uh, what she does is calls her son, who shows up with a little flute, like you do. This is my sign for flute. Um, and they had a little call, and it was what the shepherds would do. He'd start playing. He plays this little song, and all of a sudden, very particular sheep look up, and they're just like, yep, that's our song. It's wild. Looked up and saw these like, little pictures of this like, act happening in other instances. It's like, yo, 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 Jimmy. That's our tune. Let's go. You know, and they take off. And 25 or so of these sheep move out from the pack. And this boy keeps playing. And the sheep literally follow them out and follow them home. They'd spent so much time together that they literally recognized their own call. And a sea of sheep were able to make their way out and be saved from this confiscation. Jesus makes this claim. He makes a claim like all of these claims that we've talked about over the last, what's it been, five weeks since Easter. I'm the vine, I'm the source. I'm the one who will lead you. I'm the life. And religion will try to rob you. Rules will try to rob you. A lack of rules and boundaries will try to rob you. These cultural forces will try to push against you and and speak to the absurdity, the absurdity of the way of Jesus. And the invitation, again, is like, will you let his voice become the loudest in your life? He will lead you. He will protect you. And again, like it says here in John 10, he is where the life is. He is where the life is. He will lead you. I wanted to invite us... um, as we close this section on Jesus, as we sort of sum up a bit of um, what we've been drilling down into over the last couple of weeks, to do what we set out to do in a really like specific, uh, concrete way when we started this series, which was to behold him. This sounds like a very churchy word, I know. This idea that like you become what you get your eyes on. I always love when people are like, I don't really hear Jesus talking to me. I've been praying and nothing's really happened. And I'm like, and then like we just sort of like bring God into our attention for the moment of like a brief crisis. And then we exclude him from all of our margin and all of our time. Or, or we constantly um, bring Jesus to trial in our own hearts. Did Jesus really say that? Is Jesus really, um, does Jesus really mean that? Am I really supposed to walk this out in this way? That seems a bit extreme. And what happens is, is when we get our eyes fixed on Jesus, through his word, through trusting his voice, what happens is we begin to notice something about who he is. We notice something about his character. We notice something about his very nature. John's first letter says that God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Love by its nature, by its nature leads. 
There's a difference between me giving you a map of where the bathroom is at 15 Hayes Street and me walking with you to the bathroom. There's a big difference letting you know, like, here's a map, where's where my house is, and me getting in my car and saying, follow me, I'll drive slow so you can, like, make your way to my house. This is the distinct nature of the way of Jesus. And I think there are two invitations as we kind of land the plane, I guess, here in a moment. One is for those to consider, um, have I allowed myself to be led and trusted, trusted that he really is the door and the gate and the way and the truth? Not as some weird, like, check the box so I'm going to heaven when I die thing. Which, by the way, is not wrong. There's some of us who, who, who I don't think know or trust or allow ourselves to be led. Who continue to listen to the voice of the Pharisees of religion or listen to the voice of the enemy of rebellion. And we let them leap over the fence. Or maybe better said, we don't actually enter into the fence and into the courtyard because we allow them continually to lead. Love, this love that leads us, love needs to find expression. Love doesn't give you a map. Love gets in the car and leads you to Andrew's house. <laughs> love must be made flesh. This is what the incarnation is. This is, as I've often said, um, I bring this up probably like every couple of years, but Marshall McLuhan's great advertising reminder, the medium is the message. The method by which you send a message has just as much impact or more than the content that the message has itself. We don't get, we just don't get, it's just different. This isn't about being civil or not being civil. This isn't about not being generous. This isn't about not learning things from other faith systems, whether it be atheism, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Islam. Like, we, we, it, it's not about um, disrespect. It's just an acknowledgement of the difference. Where in those instances, there's a fatalism. This is the map. This is just how things are. Whether it's a completely scientific worldview, you are just neurons, none of this matters. This is just, you are the sum of your physical parts. Or whether it is law dropped on to you do this stuff No, no, no. What we see in the way of Jesus is a risky love, an incarnated love, a love that moves towards us. The way in which God comes to us. This is why I find all these I am statements that we've been plowing through the last five weeks so compelling. I didn't think I was honestly going to get swept up into them the way that I did. When I first started preparing these messages, I, I just kept looking like, this is sort of like a different version of the same thing every time, Jesus. Okay, I am. All right, you're the best. I am. Okay, you're the best. I am. You're the best. And the more I drill down into these, I'm like, wow, this hits the core longing, the one we long for. I desperately long to be led well. I desperately long to know the source. I desperately long, in the instance of today's text, to know the voice of the shepherd and to know that in my submission to him and in walking through his access points, I am safe and known and led. 
Friends, the Bible begins with God making people who have the freedom to respond to this I am, to respond to the love and nature of God. And throughout the scriptures, these people consistently choose to not love God. It's written in Genesis 6, 6, that God regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Another translation reads, then Yahweh, God, was sorry that he had made humankind on earth and it pained his heart. These are like ancient writings and ways of seeing God as having a heart. Here's the thing about love, like it feels and responds and hurts and is filled with pain. You have a picture of God grieving and the source of his grieving is people. People God made who had freedom. Freedom to love anybody they want and freedom not to love anyone they want. God, God experiences, I guess you could say, in some way divine heartbreak. And for some of us, this is like the perspective of God like we need. Many of the images of God that are all, again, true, that have aspects of the read in scriptures of a warrior, fights for us, who's strong, a creator, a judge, a father, but a lover. A lover whose heart's been crushed and the writers have God speaking in poetry. Which raises these questions for us as we look at I am the gate. Like what or who is behind it all? Jesus pushing back against a set of rules and a set of beliefs. Jesus pushing back against the judges and the critics who are missing the entire point of the story. Jesus pushing back against the rebellion that has this warped view of freedom. He says, you've got to be able to trust me and trust my voice. And so this image in the scriptures of love moving towards us, of love being incarnated. I, I, I think this is a funny phrase. I was like digging through some old notes and found this. Like if you're, if you're God and you wanted to express ultimate love to your creation, if you want to move toward them in a definitive way, you have a problem. Because just, just showing up, just showing up overwhelms them. You wouldn't come in strength. You wouldn't come in pure, raw essence. You'd scare everybody away. So how would you express your love in an ultimate way? How do you connect with people in a manner that wouldn't scare them off, but would compel them to want to come closer, to draw nearer? You need to strip yourself of all the trappings that come with ultimate power and authority. That's how love works. It doesn't matter, right? If a person has a million dollars and wants to woo someone, if they love that person for their money, it isn't really love. This is the story of Jesus, the poetry of this. My favorite commentator on the scriptures, Bono. Jesus is born to teenage peasants under questionable circumstances. His mother gets pregnant before marriage. He's born amid the dung and straw of a stable. He's placed in a feeding trough. His brothers and sisters think he's out of his mind. And after his first sermon in his hometown, the people he grew up with form a mob and try to kill him. And then who does Jesus identify with? The outcasts, the people of the land who aren't good enough, clean enough, wealthy enough, people who aren't pure enough to be a part of the establishment. He's invited to a dine with the elite and the rich, which he does numerous times, but he also eats with the lowest of low and he enjoys it and enjoys them. He touches people with infectious diseases. He lets questionable women touch him. He lays his hands on dead bodies. 
and he engages in conversation with social outcasts. His entire life, you see him stripping away power and control, choosing the path of love, choosing the path of love, compassion, not control. He comes on a donkey, not a war horse, weeping and broken, not proud and triumphant. The path, the path that Jesus has chosen, which he continues to choose day after day, takes on these like ominous undertones. He finds himself at odds again and again, like in this scene in John 10 with those in power. And it's in these moments that he starts dropping all of these hints that this path he's going on involves suffering and death. There's a conflict between love and controlling power. As we read the Gospels, we find Jesus' message putting him more and more at odds with the religious and political leaders. He's threatening their power because that's what love does. It threatens the empires of power and control. It threatens wealth and manipulation. And then he's eventually arrested and put on a sort of trial at which he's asked to perform miracles and he refuses, knowing that a display of his miraculous abilities would not be true to the path he's on. He's eventually beaten and flogged. And when he doesn't fight back, he's mocked. Doesn't say anything in return. He's hung on a cross, naked, bleeding, vulnerable, thirsty. It says in Philippians, Jesus, who in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Strength and weakness. This is not weakness as we think of weakness. There, there is a weakness that is truly weakness, that has nothing else to it, no depth, no intention, no greater purpose. But Jesus is intentional in what he's doing. He's vulnerable for a reason. He comes to meet us. This is what love does. In the middle of the night, lays in front of the gate, keeping watch over the religion and rebellion that would want to leap over the side of the fence. He calls to his sheep and they know his voice. He doesn't push from behind like the gods of determinism. And then we have in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, a passage we've spent a lot of time in post-pandemic. The disciples are walking away from Jerusalem, utterly disappointed and defeated. Anyone else di disappointed and defeated? Just, just wrecked. Disappointed and defeated. Hoping he was going to be the leader. Spent three years throwing their lives at his feet. And then Jesus comes to them. Now, if you're Jesus and you've got 40 days, like <laughs> before the ascension, what would you do? I would get in front of as many people as possible. Like, how do you like me now? Just resurrected, right? This is like an unbelievable, like divine, like booyah moment that he could have had. <laughs> and then we get this insight, I think in Luke 24, is not a small thing into the heart of God. He seeks out the people who had given up. He seeks out the people who are discouraged. He seeks out the people and calls them back in. My sheep will hear my voice. He invites them back in. 
I'm the gate. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the vine. This is how God moves. This is the character of God caring for those that are discouraged. This is how God moves. Preparing a way, not wanting anyone to miss it. Desiring for everyone to know him. This is how God moves. He lays down his life for humanity. Tortured, abused, hanging naked on the cross, forgiving his torturers, praying for his killers, loving his enemies. That's God. That's God. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he was saying that his way and his words and his life and our connection to how things truly are at the deepest levels of existence, this is how things are. Jesus isn't saying there aren't like some truths in other systems or other beliefs or principles or religions. He's saying something very clear. So we talk about Jesus being the only way. All he's saying is there's no one else coming for you. There's no one else coming for you. It's all religion. It's all what you need to do or it's fatalism. Please feel free to challenge me on this. Come up after and present me a worldview that doesn't fall into one of those two traps. And then the uniqueness and otherworldliness of the way of Jesus. And so when we ask questions like what will happen to all those people who don't know him, who rejected him, it's a way of saying, and that's okay, it's a way of asking the question. I think it's a good question. We're saying, does God care more than us? Does God care more than us? Is God more concerned and more proactive in regards to the human condition? If we are all separated, if we're all sinners, and there is an eternity, then God should be more concerned about it than we are, right? 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 Okay, cool. Stay. <laughs> Just checking. Lots of times what people are really saying is, I couldn't give my life to a God who doesn't care about everyone. We have these desires for everything to work out. And these desires to see all faiths is sort of the same thing. I want to read to you 1 Timothy 2. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. By the way, that verse right there, just as an aside, it feels like the, the verse of, the, of like this cultural moment. Does anyone else feel that? Anyone else? Like, whew, live peaceful and just quiet lives. Steady faithful, quiet lives. Okay, but that's not the point of this sermon. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God says we should pray for everyone. And if there were no hope for a person to enter through the gate, to be rescued, to be saved, to be healed, to know the life of the ages now and into eternity, would God exhort us to pray? No. And since there's this possibility, the Bible says that we're to pray for them. Second Peter 3.9, lest you think this is the only place this pops up. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let me just say this. It seems the longing 
for all people to turn to him. The desire for everyone to know and walk in the life of the ages is in the heart of God. And that, whatever big questions you have, this isn't meant to be a big apologetic sermon on like Jesus being the only way. I kind of pivoted from that. But this should bring us a bit of peace. Because the question is, does God care more than we do? And the answer is resounding. He cares more. He cares more. Does he care more than we do? No. He's simply saying, I'm the only one coming for you. I'm the only one coming for you. Unless you think, (laughs) unless you think this teaching is sort of like, for maybe the handful of folks out here who don't know Jesus. By the way, it is for you, and you should just, he's really worth following. You should become a Christian. It's freaking awesome. I'm serious. Like, if you just want to know anything about it, like, just come talk to me. Come talk to Mike, Tim, Britt. Like, we'd love to talk to you. Like, he's worth giving your entire life to, turning around, getting rid of it. He's just worth it. Repenting and believe. Sounds like this creepy concept, best concept ever. Turn away from it, all that will lead you into death begin to walk it out. It's amazing. And then if you begin to like walk in his teachings, like actually walk in his teachings, not like whatever, <laughs> you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you're saved by grace. Like you don't have to do anything to earn it. It's just like saying yes to the gift. You can totally resist the gift. You're loved and adopted and known anyway. You can resist it. You can totally walk away from it and say, no, thank you. But to say yes to it and to receive it, oh man, it's beautiful. You should do that. But honestly, for most folks in this room, for a lot of you, I was thinking about this. <laughs> it's going to sound like a curveball here. It's going to sound like this. Our, um, Amazon has this, um, this phrase, what do they call it? They call it a, they're a day one organization. Anyone ever heard this before? Day one company. The idea here is really simple. You just treat every day like it's the first day of your company. Like it's the first day. And what it does is it keeps them sharp, keeps them creative, keeps them innovative, keeps them open, keeps them customer-centric. And I was just thinking, like, as, like, I don't know, odd and awkward as a parallel that is, like, I wanted, like, what does it mean to be a day one Christian? Like, a day one Christian. This message is not just for, like, man, I hope someone maybe says yes to Jesus today. Glad I did. Peace. This is meant to stir our hearts and souls all over again. This is the love that has come near to us. This is the love that wants to lead us. This is the love that is the source. This is the love that can wake us from our slumber and lead us deeper into our calling. This is the love that can open up radical forgiveness and channels for freedom and joy and reconciliation. This is the love that's come near. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one else is coming for you. No other ideology or worldview is coming for you. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you, um, would you awaken our hearts? to the truth, and maybe it's going to take a little bit of extra faith today, of the God who runs up the road to us. Like in the story of the prodigal son.
The God who says it's never too late, never too late, and never too late. Come and turn. Come and know. God who invites us again to return to our first love, day one, and experience the refreshing joy of our salvation. <laughs> could, could, you, could you guys do something really? You don't have to do this. This is like the worst thing ever for some people. Would you just force a smile on your face right now? I'm not going to look. You're all, everyone's looking forward. No one's going to see you. Just force a smile on your face. <laughs> like in faith. For those of you who are followers of Jesus. It's not that we don't like have times of lament. It's not that there aren't times to grieve. Jesus grieves. Please don't hear any of that. But good Lord, restore, David prays, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. The joy, the joy of the love that is mine. The joy that ultimate healing will come. The joy of this love that is drawn near. The joy of a God who sits and guards the gate. And if we would let him, keeps the thieves and robbers at bay who want to steal our joy, want to lead us into legalism or rebellion. And it picks up the flute, <laughs> calls us out, and woos us into our future. Holy Spirit, would you come? I don't know what you want to do, God. I don't know what you want to do in this space, but we just, we're here for it, whatever it is in these last few minutes. So I'll just give this as a prompt. If you want to come forward, there's something you need to repent of, lay down. If there's just like, I want to like, I want to hit, I want to hit, I want to hit restart again, like again and again and again. So I try to do every morning. First love. I'm back at summer camp. First love. First time I experienced the love of Jesus. The first time I heard his voice. That moment of grace that changed everything. I go back to my family being raised in a home where the love of God was known. I remember again. Let's do that again as a family as we sing. I've never known a love like yours. If you're here and you want to say yes to Jesus, like come forward. There's going to be some people right over here. I'm saying that in faith. I hope there's going to be some people right over here. There. Kevin. If you said yes to Jesus for the first time, you want to say yes. Maybe you got questions. Something's happening in your heart. doesn't quite make sense in your head. Just sneak over here. We'd love to pray with you. And I, don't, I, I know many of you are in a season of trial. So this smile isn't meant to be fake or pushed on or plastered on. But it is meant to acknowledge a truer joy than the ache that you're in, a truer reality than the pain you're experiencing now. Holy Spirit, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Renew, Lord, a fresh spirit, a right spirit within us. And all God's people said, let's respond together.